Jesus conversations. As I put it before, we are eavesdropping in on these conversations with others. Last week's conversation was pretty spectacular, I think. We had a conversation between Jesus, a prostitute, and a religious teacher. Uh, it's pretty amazing. And the one we're eavesdropping in on this week is no less spectacular, uh, perhaps even stranger. In my mind, it's sort of a conversation among superpowers. Uh, really significant figures in, on, on the scope of world history. Um, and even though it's supernatural, uh, stretches the realm of our belief in some ways, I think if we listen in really carefully, we'll, we'll hear that this conversation that's taking place is a conversation that we ourselves have every single day. Not just once or twice, but many, many times. As we listen in on Jesus' conversation, I think we'll learn something about him, how he's like us, and how he's not like us, and how that gives us hope. So our text is Matthew 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11, and verse 17. It might be there. It's probably there. You can follow along up there, or in your own Bible. And uh, I'm going to read. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, All these I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it's written, You shall love the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came. And we're ministering to him. Now verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Good Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray as we come to it today that you would show us Jesus. Pray, Spirit, you would be at work to sharpen our minds, to give us ears to hear. And that you would grow these words into our hearts, that we might have a full knowledge of Jesus and rest in him. I pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's September 11th, and in order to humor me, how many of you actually remember September 11th, 2001? Well, that's more than I thought. Some of you were like five, right? Right? Some of you were like five? Six? Okay. Well, I was in graduate school at the time, older than you are now, and I remember it very well, of course. And, um... If you weren't there and you weren't very aware of it, uh, as a nation, we were utterly dumbfounded and outraged um, that evil could touch us so deeply, profoundly, and powerfully here. Nothing like this had ever happened. And all told, 2,996 people were killed. Thirteen years later, right now, still, 1,115 victims' bodies have not been identified. But it speaks to the scope of the damage done. That 13 years later, there are still loved ones hoping that their loved ones' bodies will be identified. Um, and it was if it was as if that day the entire nation woke up into a nightmare 
Collectively, we had a nightmare together. Only it didn't end, and we realized, this isn't a nightmare. This is real life. This is what the world is like. And everything before this was a fairy tale dream. To show you how different things are now than then, we could never have imagined an attack like that 13 years ago. Okay? This was incomprehensible. To show you how far we've come in 13 years with our number of wars, um, NATO just met a week or two ago. And at that meeting in Wales, Wales, by its very definition, is in the middle of nowhere. It's inaccessible, okay? You can't get to Wales very easily. Um, in order to protect the president and the other 60 world leaders there, a 12-foot-long steel fence, not 12 foot, excuse me, 12-mile-long, <laughs> that's a little more impressive, right? 12-foot-long. <laughs> We're all going to hide behind this fence. <laughs> A 12-mile-long steel fence was erected around the meeting places. 12 miles. Uh, To me, that's a great admission from the world's leaders that evil is real, evil is powerful, and it has a powerful reach. If it wasn't a real concern, you wouldn't build a 12-mile-long fence, right? And uh, the reality is, all these state diplomats and powers, it's okay to build a fence, but they know deep down a fence will not keep evil at bay. We have Americans fighting for ISIS. Britain has their citizens fighting for those countries. Uh, Deep down, we understand, if we look really at the nature and reach of evil, that fences can't keep us safe. And that's true both cosmically, philosophically, in this world, and in our own lives. In our own lives, fences won't keep us safe. That's why it's really interesting what happens here with Jesus. Uh... When it comes to Jesus, here, he marches out into the wilderness, or he's marched out, uh, to meet evil face to face. Because Jesus and God realizes you can't defeat evil with a fence. What fence can you build to adequately defeat evil in this world or in your own heart? Jesus doesn't build a fence. He meets evil face to face. And as we listen in on their conversation... We're going to hear that Jesus is our champion. We're going to see that he's our champion, and we can confidently come to him. That's our main thought for tonight. That's what we're going to see in our text. And what makes him a great champion for us is that he is like us, and that he's not like us. And then we can come to him confidently. So those are our main points. That he's like us, not like us, and we can come to him confidently. So how is Jesus like us? And, uh, there's some things in this text that are remarkable. Okay, lots of things in this text that are remarkable. But there are lots of other ways in which Jesus is like us. And it's clear in this text. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Okay, that seems not like us. Not something I've experienced. But the reality is that each one of us experiences temptation every day. And our wilderness may not be like Jesus' wilderness, but we have a wilderness all our own. I'll talk about that. And the wilderness that Jesus marched into is not like a Robinson Crusoe, romantic, perfect human man that can be self-fulfilling and do it all himself. It's more like being stranded in outer space. Uh, the wilderness of that day was a place of utter desolation. You got no cell phone. Jesus didn't have the happy survival guide to the desert with him. Uh, no one's coming to get him. And he has no resources. 
The resource, the, the, the wilderness is the place of utter desolation and dependence on God. If it doesn't rain, I thirst to death. If something doesn't die in front of me, I starve to death. And that's what it's like. That's his wilderness. That's not our wilderness. But we have a wilderness on our own where we are weak and dependent and we're exposed to temptation. And you need to see that Jesus, like us, is exposed to temptation in the place of wilderness. And we see in verse 3 that he really is tempted. Verse 3, the tempter comes to him and saying all these things begins to tempt him. At this point, it's like a need to address the reality of an evil superpower. Now, I, I remember being like 15 or 16 in my church and being asked to like teach a Sunday school class to the old people in the class. I have no idea what they were thinking letting me do this. Why would they ask me to do this? And I think, actually, I, I put a text like this. It may have been this text. And I think for a 15-year-old who probably wasn't a Christian and didn't know what I was talking about, it probably did a pretty good job. Um, except I remember saying, like, yeah, there really was a devil. It might have been like this. And everyone in the class was like, what do you mean? Like, I grew up in the church, but at age 15 I was convinced that there, there was no personal devil or evil thing in the world. And I would say as I've grown, matured, gotten more educated, I would say I was wrong. And that there really is an evil superpower in this world. I would say that it's completely not only plausible, but reasonable. When you look at the nature of evil, the scope of evil, and the sometimes completely diabolical nature of evil, to come to the conclusion there has to be something at work in this world to divide people from God and one another and make things as bad as they can be. Some of the things that humans have done to one another in history are simply inexplicable on our own terms. How could we even dream of something so evil? I believe there's really a personal evil agent at work in this world. This text presents him as the devil. One of my favorite authors, Walker Percy, put it a different way. Either the world's gone mad, like there's something really wrong in this world, or I'm a madman. I think the world's gone mad in the sense that there really is brokenness and evil in this world, and something stands behind it. So is that uh, is really personally troubling to you? I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, I think one way or the other, we have to figure out what evil is and how it exists. And I think the Bible's explanation of what evil is is plausible and realistic and right. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about it more. Uh, personally, we all have the experience of regularly doing things we know we shouldn't do. And regularly doing things that we don't even want to do. And we also have the experience of wanting to do other things, like love our neighbors or be nice to our mom, and not being able to do it. There's something at work in the world, and it's not just the devil. There are other elements as well. But things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And here we see even Jesus, in his weakness, being tempted. And he's tempted in some areas of weakness. And here we see Jesus' humanity on full display. I don't know what your understanding of Jesus is, but perhaps you think of him as just a wonderful human being, so this wouldn't surprise you. Perhaps you think of him as some kind of like saintly angel being who wasn't really a human, He's like a superhuman. And here, in all his neediness and weakness, he's being tempted, like us. He's tempted in his area of need. Verses 2 and 3. The man hasn't eaten in 40 days. The text is stating the obvious when it says, and he was hungry. <laughs> okay, I'm hungry at 6 in the afternoon when I haven't eaten since lunch. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. Jesus is starving. Like he's legitimately starving. When the devil comes to him and says, hey, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. 
Prove yourself by the Son of God by doing the thing you most want to do right now, Jesus, which is eat. And he's tempted in an area of great insecurity. Out in the desert, alone, cut off from everyone, he's just been baptized. And during that baptism, he heard the words of God saying, You're my beloved son. I'm pleased with you. Forty days of hunger, forty days alone. Wouldn't you possibly begin to wonder, Who am I? What am I doing? I'm not saying Jesus is dead, but we would. And the devil's here saying, Why don't you do something sensational? Why don't you throw yourself off the temple and let God rescue you? That will remind you who you are. You're God's son. Prove it. Show yourself that God cares for you. Or, lastly, an easy route to his purpose. An easy route to his glory. The devil takes Jesus higher and higher. And he takes him lastly to a mountain. And he shows him the whole world. And this has to be really appealing to Jesus. Because why did Jesus come? He came for the world. For the love of the world, he came. And the devil spreads out the world before him and says, I offer you everything, all the world. I just need you to do one thing, bow the knee to me. And what he offered Jesus was a glorious, pain-free, humiliation-free, easy way to fulfill his purpose. Jesus, you can love those people right now. All you got to do is bow your knee to me. All these temptations were well-aimed at Jesus and his heart and in his need. And Jesus, as a human, would have acutely felt each one. Uh, I read a book a number of years ago. It's a great book by Nathaniel Philbrick called In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Welsh of Essex. I like depressing music and depressing books. And uh, this is a book about some men who are on a fishing boat in the 1850s, and their boat is sunk by a giant whale. That really did happen. And uh, over 2,500 miles are trying to get back home. Of course, lots of them starve. This gets a little gross, by the way. Um, so, as men began to die and other men are starving, they begin to eat their comrades. Yes. That's not the disturbing part. The disturbing part is that the men cannot stop sucking on the bones of their deceased comrades. I mean, they're just constantly chewing on them. They think, rightly, as they're, they're, they were good men, they think they're losing their minds. It's later proven physiologically that when you're starving, the thing you most long for is fat and marrow. You're like a child just longing for food. And that's what those men were doing. They were trying to stay alive. Their bodies were trying to keep them alive. But we have no rubric for starvation. And we really have no understanding what it is to hunger. And Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. 40 days. I mean, I need you to see that Jesus is really tempted it had to be hard for him. And frankly, I'll give you another example. It's not so uh, life or death. It's a little more enjoyable. So, uh, I have three kids. And I have a bunch of students. And for the most part, the relationship is really good. You guys like my kids. My kids like you. It's only like two or three weeks of the year when it's bad. And that's the first couple weeks of the school year. Because during the first couple weeks of the school year, I am giving you snow cones. And Capri Suns, and sodas, and pizza, and snacks. And my house is full of chewing gum and all that stuff. And, uh, frankly, we're out of control with our kids. We can't watch them all the time. And uh, during nap time, when they're in their own personal wilderness, our kids are like rats. They're just eating everything. They're not allowed to, but they're eating everything. In their wilderness, in their hunger, they're just doing whatever they want and eating what they want. And for the most part, that's like us. We're far more like my children 
and far less like Jesus. Jesus' temptation was real for him, and uh, in Gethsemane later, it's real for him. There, it's so acute that he asked his friends to come with him and pray for him. And some of you are in your own personal wilderness now in a way that you never imagined. Like it's a concrete wilderness, and you're surrounded by buildings and opportunities and events and people. But you're outside the watching care of people that love you, and outside their expectations, outside that structure. And maybe for the first time ever, you feel, not only can I get away with this, but acutely you feel the temptation to do certain things. Or maybe it's not a new thing. Maybe it's an old thing that's just alive with all new power in you right now, this temptation to do something. And although the big answer to that is coming later, the short answer I want to give you right now is, I would encourage you to be honest about that. Because Jesus was. When Jesus was suffering and foreseeing temptation in Gethsemane, he said, guys, I need you right now. Come with me. I'm not telling you to walk around telling everybody that you're tempted all the time. Excuse me, I think you're really cute. I can't stop thinking about you. Yeah, don't do that. Um... Uh, but with your couple good friends, tell them. I mean, in a, in a couple of weeks, you're going to start telling people you're stressed and you get all kinds of work. That's great. Be honest about that. Be honest about some of the other stuff, too. And so we see that Jesus was tempted like us. And that's sort of good news for us. But he also was not like us. And that's also good news. He was not like us in that he uh, responded differently. And he was victorious. And that's for a couple of different reasons. One, he was radically dependent on God's word. Let's do this really quickly. We're not going to look at it in detail. But every temptation was met with scripture. Every one. In other words, Jesus really believed the Bible. And he knew it. And he believed it was authoritative. Like God meant what he said. And Jesus believed he could trust it. And uh, in the second one, the second temptation is really interesting. After Jesus rebuts the first temptation by quoting from the Bible... The devil's like, oh, you want to have a scripture fight? Cool, I can do that. And so Satan gives him a temptation, worded in scripture. He misapplies or misquotes the Bible. And then Jesus begins to critique it and responds with scripture. And what happens here is sort of like, uh, it's sort of like the sword fight scene in Princess Bride. Like, you have guys that are both really good at using the Bible. Only Jesus is using his left hand instead of his right. And what he does here in replying to all these temptations, I mean, they're angry at his heart and his need. Jesus has the whole Bible in front of him. He's like, uh, I think I'll just use the book of Deuteronomy. Every answer is from Deuteronomy. He knows the whole, it's not like he only knew Deuteronomy. He has the whole Bible. But he's like, you know what, I can answer all these questions just using Deuteronomy. That's how well he knew his Bible and how deeply he trusted it. That he was radically dependent on God's word and trusted God's word more than his hunger or his desire to test God's care, or his desire to take the easy way to glory. So he's radically dependent on God's word. He was radically devoted to God. Each one of these answers, in verse 4 and 7 and 10, they're about God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 7, again it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 10, you shall worship the Lord your God, him only shall you serve. In other words, God, the Father, is the supreme, ultimate reality for Jesus. He's what matters to Jesus. More than anything else, God matters to Jesus. The last one, the last temptation, had to be really powerful. Really. Jesus came for the world. 
to save and love the world, he would have to die. That's part of the plan. You didn't know that. We're going to get there later. But he has to die. Here's a way to love the world without having to die and go through humiliation. But Jesus refuses any path toward that purpose that doesn't include God. Obedience to God, allegiance to God. And so, in this way, Jesus really defeats evil. It's not the last battle in this account in Luke. Uh, it's really interesting. Luke says the devil went away until an opportune time. In other words, Jesus will fight this battle over and over his whole life. And lastly, probably in Gethsemane, right before his death. But over and over and over, Jesus says no. And I've said this before. When we face temptation, most of us are like, mm, no, no. Okay, yes. Sounds great. Or, the temptation comes, we don't even say no. We're just like, oh, that's great, sure. Um, but Jesus, his whole life long, said no all the way to the end. And so, in some ways, he experienced temptation like none of us ever have. In greater degree. And he did it his whole life long so that he was the perfect man. So that when he died, he could rightly bear our debt and we could rightly get his righteousness. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, the text makes a point of the 40 days, all these other things. And the point is that other people have been tested like this before. Adam was the first, and he failed. And then Moses and Elijah were both with God for 40 days, but they were not the ultimate men either. They both failed. Israel was in the desert for 40 years. They didn't trust God. They failed. And the book of Romans sums it up this way. Everybody died. Death reigned. Everyone got it wrong. No one trusted God like they should. It all fell apart. No one, no one has withstood temptation the way they're supposed to. If I can imagine going into this confrontation, Satan's thinking like, well, the score, the score so far is one billion to zero. I'm winning. And uh, this guy's on my home court, and he's hungry, and he's needy. I'm feeling pretty good about this. I mean, that's the way it seems to me. And it sort of reminds me of this scene from uh, The Lion King, which you've seen The Lion King, even though it was made like 10 years before you were born. Um, so, Scar, Simba's return, and Scar has publicly humiliated him, and Simba has now fallen off the cliff, and he's hanging on for dear life. You remember that? And, like, dramatically, lightning flashes across the sky, because that has to be more dramatic, and lights the fire. Because falling off a cliff's not bad enough, you have to fall into the fire. I'm actually mocking the movie now, and I can't help it. But it's still a good scene, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it, so it should stop making it worse. Anyway, um, as Simba's holding on for dear life, Scar leans over and he says, now this looks familiar. What have I seen this before? Let me think. I remember this is the way your father looked right before he died. Here's my little secret. I killed Mufasa. Remember that scene? Yeah. It's a little more powerful than I just said. Um, and Simba leaps forth in righteous anger and calls him a murderer and pins him to the ground. Uh, that's what's going on here. Satan is the great accuser who has led everyone to death. And in this encounter, the score is one billion to zero. And he's killed everyone. Really, death has reigned because we all give in to temptation and sin. And here Jesus defeats the evil one. Not by overpowering him, but by saying no. And uh, the way Jesus is going to lay the way forward is a little different than we would imagine. We see it in verse 17. After Satan leaves in verse 17, Jesus begins to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
I'm going to pull this together real quick. So Jesus is like us. He's tempted like we are. He's a man like we are. He's not like us. He says no to the very end, and he's righteous. So what does that mean for us? And uh, one of the writers of the Bible later on in the book of Hebrews writes, we do not have a priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a priest who in every respect has been tempted like us, yet without sin. So let's draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you put together that God, that Jesus is like us and not like us, it means we can come confidently to him. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 17. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Does not sound very inviting, right? Does it sound inviting to you? It doesn't sound inviting to me, but it is inviting. What Jesus is saying is, the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is here. That would be me, the king, Jesus. And I want you to turn from the way you've been living under the dominion of Satan, who has ruled your lives and led you into death, come into my kingdom. Because my kingdom is one of grace. That's what Hebrews is saying. Come to his throne of grace. He's the king, and his kingdom is not ruled by temptation, it's not ruled by accusation, it's not ruled by death. It's ruled by grace. It's ruled by mercy. That's what Hebrews says. Because, just like us, he's undergone every temptation, he understands. And you're going to be thinking, you can't possibly understand what it's like to be a college student. What if I had to be tempted? Did you forget last week that his feet were washed by the hair and tears of a prostitute? That ever happened to you? <laughs> I don't think so. He was tempted like us in every way, and he understands. He understands. And that enables him to be merciful and sympathetic to us and gracious. The text says that uh, we come to a throne of grace, and we should come to him to receive grace. And that grace not only forgives us and cleanses us, but the text says that we should come to him in our time of need, that we might find grace to help us. The way this works is we're supposed to come to our king, Jesus, honestly, knowing we'll be received and loved, and as we're near him, in our honesty and our need, he strengthens us. He changes our hearts. He shows us his great love for us. So that we love him more than we love our sin. So we're able to say no to things we want to say no to. He enables us to love God and love others like we're supposed to. He makes us like him. That's what we do when we regularly come to him confidently. So how many stories do you know and love that follow this basic plot line? The world's not the way it's supposed to be. There's an evil spell at work. <laughs> and, or there's a witch. Or there's a Sauron, or there's an alien, or there's a Scar, or there's a monster, or there's a Voldemort. And it looks pretty clearly like evil's going to win, right? But hope's not lost because there's someone coming, a great hero or a great king, who returns and almost always through their own sacrificial love and sacrifice of their own life, they rescue their people. They win the day. How many of you like stories like that? Everybody, you, you like stories like this. I mean, we love these epic stories. Whether it's an Aragorn, a Simba, King Arthur, Aslan, Harry Potter, you name it. We love these stories. And we know these myths and tales aren't factually true. They haven't really happened. 
And yet, I think there's a real sense in which they're the truest things we know. I think they're the truest things we know. One of the reasons we love them so much is because they speak about the world in a way that's realistic. The world really is broken. There really does seem to be a spell. There really is someone coming who's come, who's going to make things right. There really is a hero and a king. It makes sense of our world. And we want a king like that. And we have one. Christianity, C.S. Lewis suggests, isn't just a myth. It's a true myth. The true story working on us, just like the others, but it really happens. There really is evil at work. There really is a king who came and lived just like us, but overcame. And we can come to him and live in his kingdom and live freely, differently, loving God and loving others well. All right, let's pray together. Good Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your great plan. You could have come in a lot of different ways. You could have come in a million